Brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If in fact we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. May I speak in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please do be seated. Now I don't know about you, but I have never understood the appeal of EastEnders. Whenever I've caught bits of it, usually in the end up in the end of it, in the run-up to the Duff Doves. It always seems to be people being angry with each other or mean to each other. And I remained puzzled. The only thing that kind of helped me a bit was when somebody told me that they watched it because it made them feel so much happier about their own life. <laughs> but, and perhaps that's the key. But in my experience, I don't know whether it's yours, I tend to enjoy films and TV that chime with my own experience and my own worldview. I don't know whether any of you have seen that film about the Camino, The Way. Just a quick brief show of hands. Oh, not so many of you. Oh, I'll go, see, I'm going to have to show that to you sometime. Um, it's a fun tale, um, but it's nothing like as rewarding, uh, to me anyway, as watching a film about the Camino, which is actually a documentary called Seven Ways. Because, to my mind, that's actually a truthful reflection of what it's really like to walk the Camino. What worldview we have is crucial, I think, for how we interpret events around us, people and events. And it seems to me that we live in a world where there's an increasing polarisation in worldviews. And it seems, too, that people are able to hold two very different views at the same time. So yesterday there was a protest by people wanting the end to lockdowns and also to vaccinations. <laughs> you feel like going, uh, well, you could have one or the other. But anyway, um, but, but when I do venture into the world of social media, everyone seems extremely confident of that their view of the world is the right one. It would be interesting to see if there's a correlation between what people say on Twitter and what they choose to watch on TV. But perhaps just as many people wonder, what is truth? Now that's hardly a new question. Perhaps there are no absolutes. No way of knowing that we are on the right track. But that in itself, of course, is an absolutist statement. But that idea about what is truth is a particularly pertinent question on Trinity Sunday when the doctrine of the Holy Trinity is considered. 
And there are a great variety of ways, as I mentioned earlier, in which the Trinity is understood. Like many clergy, I have an archive of my sermons stretching all the way back to when I was ordained. And sometimes, I'm afraid not very often, what's been said in the past uh, can be reworked a little to fit in a new setting, particularly when pressure of time is coming. But anyway, I don't know what it says of me that I have not a single sermon in the archive for Trinity Sunday. I think I must have delegated that to everyone or alternatively looked at what I'd said and torn it up and thrown it in the bin. For those of you who now might be settling back to hear my very first full exposition on the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, I'm afraid I have a bit of a disappointment. The fidget spinner was it. (laughs) Um, Instead, I'm going to reflect on our reading from Romans and what it might have to teach us about our worldview and about truth. If you look carefully within that reading, you will find all three members of the Trinity. But there's no attempt to explain it. In fact, as many of you know, there isn't a neat passage in Scripture which does present the Trinity and explain it. Instead, the writers of the New Testament, in particular St. Paul, are like occupants of a swimming pool. They write as those who swim in the reality of the Trinity. And wouldn't expect that those standing on dry land could ever really understand until they too have jumped in. The writers are a bit like commentators on a football match who know all the rules and are just focused on the play. In this passage, Paul is contrasting those led by the Spirit with those who live according to the flesh. I don't know about you, but I've got a little bit more of that since the start of lockdown. But anyway, the the word flesh here is a translation of the Greek word sarx. And for those of you who think when Paul is talking about the flesh, he's talking about the sins of the flesh or something that's sexual or wrong, I think you need to think again. It would be like saying that green only refers to the colour of the chasuble I should be wearing most weeks from now. When it's also a word that's used to describe a political party and a way of life that seeks to protect nature. Sarks, flesh, in Paul can be summarised as everything that is impermanent. So it includes our bodily flesh, and that's not to say that bodily flesh is bad, it's just impermanent. Bodies are intrinsically good, otherwise Jesus would not have been resurrected in one. But Sarks includes our flawed human nature, which was also created good, but inclines away from God and towards other things, like money or power. Well, that's okay, we might say. I'm not ruled by money or power. I'm not exactly the wolf of Wall Street, you know. Well, we might think that we're not bothered by money or power, but a quick way to find out about the money thing is to ask ourselves how we feel about giving 10% of our disposable income to God's church. If we could afford it, and yet we bridle at the thought, maybe money has got a bit of a hold on us. 
if we think we're not ruled by the pursuit of power, but struggle with the idea of giving up our time to serve others in humble ways, such as through cleaning the church or serving coffee or visiting the sick, then maybe it has more of a hold on us than we think. But of course, it is possible to tithe your 10% and serve on every rotor and still be acting out of what Paul calls our sinful flesh. We can be doing all these things to receive a reward of some kind, whether it's feeling good in our own eyes or receiving the praise of others. Paul's stark contrast between the flesh and the spirit is there because in life we are being continually presented with forks in the road, with choices to make. Do I choose to stay up late to watch another episode, which means that I then have to skip my prayer time in the morning because I'm too tired or want to have a lion? Do I express my anger when it surges in me? Or do I ask God to show me the sin that lies behind it? Do I bear a grudge when others hurt me? Or do I forgive knowing how much God has forgiven me? Life in the Spirit means that we're open to asking God which way he wants us to go and to be prepared to be obedient to that way, whatever the cost. In a way, that sounds both scary and tiring. But as one person said, love God and do as you want. If we truly love God, it will change our choices. But for those of us who aren't quite at this point, how can we trust ourselves to God? How do we know he's got our best interests at heart? We might be asking ourselves, what if I'm hurt? Such questions could be seen as a sign that we've not fully grasped our adoption as God's beloved children. That might be because our own experience of our father wasn't quite what it should have been. I noted with sadness but also with joy for him that the writer of um, The Father Heart of God, Floyd McClung, uh, died yesterday after a long illness where he was, I think he'd had a stroke and was in that kind of locked-in syndrome. So it was a, it was a mercy for him. But he wrote this amazing book that's changed so many people's lives when they realized that their own experience their father was being they were projecting that onto god but even if that's not the case it's never going to be as simple as that faith can be costly even if we have the best father in the world jesus was god's beloved son And yet the Father called him to walk towards the cross. Now we know that agonizing death was not the last word. The power of God's Holy Spirit raised Christ from death. And if we confess our sins to the Father, invite Christ to be Lord of our life, his Holy Spirit will come to live with us and lead us on a path to life even if that path involves suffering along the way. In the end, actually the life of the Spirit is the only safe way.